North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Love Talk Radio. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Dr. Low Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Noel. I'm a naturopathic doctor practicing here in sunny San Diego, California. Happy early 4th of July. I cannot wait to get out, check out the fireworks, get my barbecue on, eat some watermelon. But in actuality, I eat watermelon all the time, so it's not anything new for me. Um, I did write a blog this week on jennaphillips.com website on just some good tips of how to keep the 4th of July healthy but also have a great time as well. So check that out, jennaphillips.com. It's a pretty good blog if I say so myself. Uh, Tonight's show is definitely a very controversial topic. I will get into more of that in just a few minutes, but have some really cool announcements for you. Um, But first, if you missed last last week's show with Sally Fallon, I think it's one of those must-have listens. Like, you have to listen to that show if you're not familiar with Sally Fallon and the work of Weston Price. Um, Sally Fallon is the author of Nourishing Traditions, and it was really a joy to have her on the show. I kind of got sort of starstruck because she's like a celebrity in my book. Um, But we talked all about traditional diets, uh, the importance of fat in your diet, the work of Weston Price. So if you haven't checked that show out, definitely do so. You can listen to uh, all of the archive shows on uh, blogtalkradio.com slash drlowradio, or you can go to iTunes and uh, in the podcast directory, just search Dr. Low Radio and all of the shows. Uh, will be listed there. As usual, we'll be taking your questions on the phone lines at 818-495-6919. That's 818-495-6919. And I'll do my best to check Facebook and Twitter. So that's facebook.com slash Noel and twitter.com slash Noel. But as usual, if they're burning questions, definitely call in because sometimes I miss questions. I missed a few last week, so I apologize for that. Before we get into the meat of the show, we have a special guest in the building. We have Erin Huggins on the line from ErinHuggins.com. She's been featured in Shape Magazine, Los Angeles Times, CanBC. She is a fabulous trainer and has a lot more going for her as well. She's going to be putting on a fabulous program called the Sugar Smackdown, the Ultimate Sugar Detox. And I'm really not a fan of many online programs, but this one for sure is Dr. Lowe approved. Uh, I was on the first teleconference last night and really liked what I heard, and I'm excited to be a part of the program. So I'm going to go ahead and bring Erin on the line and she can tell you all about what the Sugar Smackdown is about. So let me go ahead and get my switchboard going here. Erin, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Hello. Hello, hello. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I'm excited to hear that you were uh, listening to the sneak peek call last night. I was. I was very impressed. And, you know, I like how you, you, don't, you don't leave out the basics and just the most important things when it comes to, you know, sugar detox and fat loss. And so tell us a little bit of what the program's all about. Well, at its core, it's really to help people who are struggling with their sugary, junky, carb addictions. Um, I like to say they're cracked out on cupcakes. You know, if you're just, if you cannot put that stuff down and you need someone to show you and teach you exactly what to eat so you're nourished and not dealing with those cravings, uh, that's what it is. So it's a 21-day sugar detox that teaches people 
how to eat, basically, so they're not dealing with those cravings. But it's it's really it's more than that because, you know, it's evolved over the years. I started doing it uh, years ago, and it's really evolved to be more of a holistic lifestyle program for anyone who really just wants to learn how to eat and wants to know what this whole holistic life lifestyle, holistic living thing is all about. And so I put together this, uh, this, this virtual program. It's a teleclass. And while the, the actual detox is still just 21 days, uh, the teleclass is actually a six-week program. So people are being supported before the detox, and then they get lots and lots of support after the detox. And um, we're also going to be doing something really cool this time. We're going to be doing live streaming weekly workouts. So that's going to be really fun. I've never done that before, so I'm excited about that. Very cool. And I'm excited who, to have you on. Yeah, I'll be involved as a guest speaker. Yeah. Um, well, Sean Cruxton from Underground Wellness, you guys probably uh, know about him. And he's going to be coming on talking about gut health. And um, then I have Dr. Kate Shanahan. I'm so excited. I'm just so overwhelmed by the amount of support I have for this class. I'm so excited about it. Um, Dr. Kate Shanahan, she's going to be coming on to talk about the low-fat fallacy and why we really need to have fat in our diet and the importance of traditional foods and animal proteins as well. And um, then let's see, I've got a module on weight loss and health psychology and really the mindset aspect to it as well. And uh, that's uh, Rita Soman. She's going to be supporting us with that. And excited to have you to talk about hormones and how to really deal with the whole stress issue and how that affects your health, your well-being, and, you know, whether or not you want to lose weight or, or what. It's really important to understand hormones and, and how uh, food and, and uh, external stress affects all that. Awesome. It's a very holistic way of doing it, and that's what I loved about the program. So I'm very excited to be supporting it and be a part of it. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. Well, thanks, Erin. Thanks for coming on the line. And for those of you who are listening and want to uh, get involved and uh, be on the next teleconference, check out DrLowSugarSmackdown.com. That's D-R-L-O, SugarSmackdown.com. And for more information about Erin Huggins, definitely check her out, ErinHuggins.com. Thanks a lot, Erin. And just so you guys know, there is another free call tomorrow night. Just uh, It's a free call about the Sugar Smackdown and some other cool stuff, too. And what time is that going down? Uh, tomorrow it's at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Perfect. Thanks a lot, Erin. I appreciate you coming oh, on. Oh, you're welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, so before I introduce the guest for tonight, I want to let you know about just some upcoming shows. We have some great guests uh, on the uh, on the front coming on the show July 5th. That will be next week. We have Nora Gidgaudis on the, on the line. She is the author of Primal Body, Primal Mind. Uh, the following week is actually to be announced. I, I don't have a guest booked. I'm thinking about just talking about what you guys are suggesting I talk about. So if you have some uh some ideas of what you like to hear about on the show, check out my uh, Facebook page. Give me some ideas. I might talk about thyroid, maybe fertility, adrenals, blood sugar. Um, I don't know. I'm open. I might, I might book someone. I might take the week off. I might talk about something. So let me know what, what you guys want to hear about. The following week is July 19th with Rob Wolf. He's the author of The Paleo Solution. I'm really excited to have him on the show. And then also July 26th will be Sherry Tenpenny, and she is all about vaccinations. Well, she's, she's very uh, well-versed in vaccinations. We're going to be talking about the pros and cons and do you really need vaccinations and all of that. So very controversial but very important topic. Let's get to tonight. 
Tonight, we'll be discussing a very controversial uh, disease for sure. Some doctors even argue that the chronic version of it doesn't exist at all, but we have a expert on the line, and she really specializes in Lyme disease, and this is Dr. Nicola McFadgen. She is the founder and the owner of Restore Medicine in San Diego, California, as well as Greenwich, uh, Connecticut. She's originally trained as a nutritionist and a traditional naturopath in Australia and later went on to receive her doctorate of naturopathic medicine at Bastyr University in Seattle, Washington. She is a Lyme literate naturopathic doctor who combines conventional and integrative medical approaches to treat tick-borne illnesses. And she is the author of The Lyme Diet, which I have been reading for the last week, and it's a fabulous book. And uh, I'm just so excited that she's joining us. So let me go ahead and bring Dr. Nicola on the line. Are you with us? I am with you. Hello there. Hello, hello. And I forgot to mention how how amazing of an accent you have. (laughs) (laughs) I have an accent. You have an accent. You're a good friend of mine as well. So I'm really excited to have you on. I don't have the accent. You have the accent. I'm sure everyone listening can agree that you have the accent. Actually, we probably do have some Australians (laughs) on the line, so we might have a debate going. (laughs) Right. So you're out there in Connecticut right now, right, doing that leg of your practice? Well, I'm in New York City right now, but, yeah, I have – I've got my office here in Greenwich, Connecticut. I actually live in Manhattan, so um, so that's where I am currently. I, this morning I was in San Diego, so <laughs> love it. who knows anymore. Bye, cool still saying. <laughs> so, I know, I know, it's great. Do you want me to call you Nicola, Dr. Nick, Dr. McFadden? What do you prefer? Dr. Nicola is usually what I go by. Okay, I'll call you Dr. Nicola. No one can get so. McFadden right, so I gave up on that a long time ago. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've actually heard it pronounced a million different ways, so I'll just do Dr. Nicola. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I've i been doing a ton of research on Lyme this last week. I don't see a ton of Lyme in my practice, um, but I've just been fascinated with it for this last week. I finally um, sat down and watched the movie Under Our Skin last night, and I was just amazed of just how incredibly debilitating this condition is and just really seeing yeah. seeing people going through it was um, really incredible, and uh, so I'm really excited to do this show and just bring some more awareness about it, and and not only just, you know, how debilitating it is, people can, you know, learn more about the actual disease, but also how much naturopathic medicine can bring to the table when it comes to um, addressing and, you know, treating effectively um, Lyme disease, so I'm, I'm really excited that we can talk about that today, so... Um, but, but first, I want to just hear a little bit more about you and what you what got you um, involved in Lyme disease. Why did you choose this particular um, condition and, and you know career path? So a little more about you. Yeah, well, I'm not sure I actually ever really chose it. I just ended up in it. Um, but really, how it started was I was working uh, with actually Dr. Kurt Willer in Temecula, um, specializing in autism, and so I was working with some of the kids, but then started working with some of the moms of the kids. And here were a bunch of, you know, 30-something-year-old women with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, and all their doctors were just telling them that they're exhausted because they have kids. But that just wasn't it. So I somehow heard that I should be testing them for Lyme and started testing them. And one by one, sure enough, they came up positive. So I started treating them, started addressing it, and um, there's so few Lyme specialists in Southern California that it wasn't too long before, you know, word gets out and people come and, and it just sort of went down that road. But I can also say that I think one of the um, – I've sort of been seeing more recently that one of my real purposes in treating Lyme disease is um, to really bridge the gap for some of the folks in Australia because it's just awareness of Lyme down there is about to blow up. And um, unfortunately, up until very recently, the government's denied its existence there. But now um, that may be shifting somewhat, and there's definitely – 
plenty of people coming out of the woodwork down there with these kinds of infections. So it's kind of nice for me to have a, a role in the Australian Lyme community too. I fly back twice a year and do clinics there and consult with a lot of Australians by phone. Um, so it's kind of you know nice for me to be helping out my, my people. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's just such a need. It's you know the one thing about Lyme disease, they call it the great Im- imitator. It can look like so many other things, and that's mm-hmm. where a lot of the misdiagnosis happens. Because for one, I mean, you know, we can talk a little bit about the politics. I don't know how much you want to get into that. But, oh, we can talk about um, whatever you want to talk about. Definitely. Yeah. Well, you know, I think part of the problem is that doctors just aren't aware enough of Lyme disease to to test for it. I think the roots of that are slightly, you know, some of the political aspects in so much as, you know, there's a group of doctors in the Infectious Disease Society of America who basically take the stance that chronic Lyme disease doesn't exist and that um, acute Lyme disease exists if you get bitten by a tick and you get the bullseye rash and you get the flu-like symptoms and you have all of that evidence, then, you know, you can knock it out with 14 or 21 days of doxycycline and and call it a day, then it's good. There's nothing else happens beyond that. And that is very clearly, you know, inaccurate. But unfortunately, they yield quite a lot of power in what the medical community, um, you know, some of the treatment protocols, some of the guidelines, and just some of the opinions about chronic Lyme, you know, come from that stance. So a lot of docs, you know, who might otherwise be open to looking for chronic Lyme, to try and identify, to try and test for it, um, probably miss that boat altogether because it's the standards of care put out by the Infectious Disease Society, who one would imagine would be at the forefront of this, being that Lyme is sort of bacterial and parasitic in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not. They're they're totally not. So I think that's why a lot of it gets missed. Hmm. And which can lead to just years and years of just suffering and misdiagnoses and you know mistreatment oh, and all that of stuff. suffering. I mean, we'll definitely ruin lives, ruin families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Lyme is, um, you know, it's a very expensive illness. Just the treatment alone. Many of the docs who treat Lyme don't bill insurance. Um, again, because with this political climate, there's so much risk involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and already a couple of our prominent docs, Lyme docs, have had their license suspended or whatnot because of that. Um, right. So there's this whole kind of it's almost a very fear-based kind of mentality on all fronts Mm -hmm. um so you know but with all the treatment protocols and stuff you know over time it can get very expensive but you know at least it's a diagnosis at least it's information that we can work with whereas if somebody's been diagnosed with chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia or even autoimmune disease ms for example you know is a good neurological disease or diagnosis that fits this you know, there's not a lot you can do. They're told there's nothing you can do, just, you know, it's all in your head, you're crazy, go take an antidepressant, get some therapy. You know, I've I've heard so many horrendous stories of how people have been treated um, through all of this. And so, you know, it's just, um, it's just such a travesty that this, this situation is the way it is because there are many, many lives just being wrecked by this illness. So I'm sure I'm sure a lot of our listeners um, are either dealing with this or know someone who is, or maybe they have some of the other conditions that uh, are you know sometimes diagnosed when in reality it's Lyme disease. But let's take a step back for people who aren't familiar with Lyme disease um, and start with the basics. So what is Lyme disease exactly? 
Yeah, so Lyme disease is a bacterial, it's, a, it's an illness caused by infection with a bacteria called Borrelia burgdorferi. And Borrelia is really the, the, the bacterial strain that causes Lyme per se. However, with Lyme, with the Borrelia, are these co-infections. So if a person gets bitten by a tick, and, you know, anymore we think, you know, we don't know what all the vectors are, um, but if, let's just go with a tick because that's what's most clearly recognized. If a person's bitten by a tick, the bacteria that cause Lyme can transmit into their system, but there are also other infections um, like Bartonella and Babesia and Rickettsia, and we call these the co-infections because they're transmitted along with the Borrelia bacteria itself. And, you know, like I said, some of them are bacterial, but some of them are more parasitic, so that's an important piece to consider in treatment planning um, to make sure all the different co-infections are covered. So, you know, it's, it's an infectious illness. Um, it becomes very chronic. It can impact many, many different systems. Um, and everybody presents slightly differently. So I can give you so that the, the classic laundry list would be, you know, chronic debilitating fatigue, often headaches, dizziness joint pain, uh, muscle pain. Many people have neurological involvement, so they could have numbness and tingling in the hands and feet, in the face, I mean, really anywhere on the body. Um, a lot of cognitive deficits, so memory loss, you know, lack of focus and concentration. One, you know, a couple of patients who get in the car and drive up the street and then forget where they're going, so they have to turn around and go back home again. Um, and... Um, and then, you know, some of the co-infections have their sort of hallmark symptoms, like Babesia, for example, is more malaria-like in nature. So those folks tend to have low-grade fevers and night sweats, lots of night sweats, temperature regulation problems, um, blurry vision, ringing in the ears, you know, all that kind of stuff. Hmm. So you can see it's ex extensive and it doesn't really spare any body system. And the other point I just wanted to throw in before I forget it is that Many people who end up diagnosed with Lyme don't ever remember a tick bite and they don't ever remember the EM rash or the target-shaped rash that, that goes with it. Um, those things, some people just don't get an EM rash. Some people get a rash that doesn't look like a bullseye. It looks like something totally different. So those requirements can't really be made anymore. Okay, so basically a tick bites a person, and, you know, if the tick has Borrelia, then that person would have, you know, classic Lyme, but that the thing is is that these ticks oftentimes carry other other diseases as well, and those are transmitted along with it, right? Exactly, and mm -hmm. so you could end up with this whole little cocktail of bugs um, getting into your system. Which, depending on which co-infection you have, that would really determine which treatment you would end up receiving, Right. It does to yeah, it does to a large extent. Now look, if somebody's gonna go into hyperbaric oxygen treatment or, you know, things like that, then it's not so important to to know the specifics, but mm -hmm. certainly for medication treatment and even for a natural sort of herbal treatment, like I said, the babesia is probably the most important to differentiate because that is a parasite. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I have a patient with Borrelia and Bartonella and Ehrlichia, I mean to some extent because they're all bacterial there's a little bit more overlap in the treatments. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. So we so classically we think of a, a tick bite. 
You know, there's been some discussion about other ways that uh, Lyme is potentially transmitted. Do we know that there's other ways of transmitted? Is it just kind of speculated right now? What are what are other ways possibly? Yeah, I mean, it, it's somewhat speculated. I mean, I think in the in the Lyme, do, you know, the Lyme literate doctor community, we're all pretty sure it's sexually transmittable. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you think about it, that's not so far, you know, outside the realm of possibility because Borrelia is a spirochete. It's a spiral-shaped bacteria. And its closest cousin that we really know of in the Western world is syphilis, mm-hmm. also a spiral-shaped bacteria. Mm-hmm. And syphilis is sort of by definition a sexually transmitted disease. So... So we think that that's one way. Certainly moms have passed Lyme to baby in utero. Um, And we're just not sure. I mean, we think fleas, lice, mosquitoes, um, other little bugs could be be carriers of these these, uh, infections. Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, they were talking about that in the uh, documentary of just how, you know, close they are, you know, uh, syphilis and Lyme, how, how, and because they're both spirochetes, and, and because of that, spirochetes, they're that shape of, of like a spiral, and they can really drill into all different types of tissues, and that's why it can affect so many different systems of the body. And it's and syphilis right. symptoms are so similar to Lyme, chronic Lyme symptoms. So it's very right. interesting, that the commonality between the two. Um, so let's see. So breast milk, we know in secretions like sperm, for example, they've found Lyme. Um, and it is interesting, too, because, you know, a person could have chronic Lyme and then eventually their partner has it and their partner doesn't know of any, you know, history of going hiking or anything like that. So, um, yeah, it does raise some eyebrows. And um, so what, let's see here. So there's diagnosis. I mean, obviously, like they were saying in the um, documentary, that 50% of people with Lyme disease um with with Lyme disease are negative with conventionally run lab tests. Do you find this to be the case in your practice? And um, you know the the, the yeah, tests that are typically which run. Labs, which tests are run and through which labs? So, I mean, the typical standard ELISA test that would be sent off to LabCorp or Quest, in my opinion, is a complete waste of time. I mean, I just wouldn't even do it. Um, the Western blot is somewhat more sensitive, but again. A Western blot done through a big lab like LabCorp or Quest um, only recognizes certain bands. So there are certain, I don't know how to explain this without getting too complicated, there are certain Mm -hmm. bands that relate to Lyme disease, and those bands are given certain numbers. Um, Now, Igenix um, recognizes more bands as being relatable to Lyme than, you know, LabCorp and some of the bigger labs. Mm-hmm. So they've done more research on the bands that they think are significant. So to test through hygienics, firstly, I think because they're a specialty Lyme lab, you know, this is what they do is trying to make their Lyme testing the best possible, whereas for LabCorp, it's one of a gazillion. Um, so I think their testing is just overall more sensitive, but they also recognize more bands as significant to diagnosis. So their reports actually will give a, an Igenix report, a result, and a CDC result. Hmm. And one could be positive, you know, they could be Igenix positive, but CDC negative. And that's because the CDC recognizes a very limited set of bands. So the Western blot is a better test. Um, you can do PCR testing, and, and while PCR testing, and, and what that is, is basically looking for the DNA of the bacteria in the blood. And PCR testing 
is great if you get a positive because it can't really be a false positive. It's either there or it's not. So if you find it and it's positive, that's great. Unfortunately, they don't find it very often. And I think part of that is because, you know, like we were saying, the Lyme Borrelia bacteria do sort of bury themselves deep into the body tissues. They don't necessarily just hang out in the blood indefinitely. Um, so for some of these people who've been chronically ill, I don't know that the PCR is... It's, it's very specific. It's not very sensitive. So mm. I may only see a positive 10% of the time that I order it. Interesting. Um, and then with the co-infections, we do antibody testing. And we also, for Babesia especially and now Bartonella, do what's called a fish test, which is a smear test where they actually um, look for the microbes sort of lighting up under the microscope. So there's a couple of different ways you can look for the for these bugs. Um, but I certainly wouldn't rely on testing through LabCorp or Quest um, because I just don't feel it's sensitive enough. Okay. And so your your panel of choice is Igenix, right? It is. I mean, I've I've always used Igenix. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they're not 100% either. Nothing is. Right. Um, and Lyme really, you know, it is a clinical diagnosis um, and, you know, backed up with lab work. So... I could have a patient who's all negative on labs and still treat them for Lyme because from mm -hmm. a clinical standpoint, from what I'm hearing from them, from the history, from their symptoms, I have enough evidence to believe that it's Lyme. Um, and so I, I may go ahead and treat them anyway, mm -hmm. okay. which, which I don't have a problem with. It's just, you know, as we're saying, in the political climate, you leave yourself a little bit more open um, to getting in trouble if you don't have lab work to back up what you're doing. Right. So it's, right. it's always nice to get a positive on a lab, but it doesn't always happen. But I'm certainly not going to deny a patient care just based on that if I'm pretty convinced that it is Lyme or tick-borne illness. Right, and you know, because labs do have their flaws for sure, and you have to treat the patient, not just the lab. Um, right. And, and you know, you mentioned Lyme disease being that the the great mimicker um, of so many different conditions. So let's say a patient walks through your door and you're really suspecting Lyme disease, but you see a long list of diagnoses that they've been given. Um, what, are some of these, what are some examples of diagnoses that patients are given when in reality it is Lyme? Um, yeah, well, some of the most common, fibromyalgia for sure, chronic fatigue syndrome, um, MS, multiple sclerosis, um, ALS, um, what else, Parkinson's sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then certainly sort of, you know, depression, anxiety, um, those kinds of things. Um, what else? There's the main ones that I hear the most. But, you know, even lupus, mm -hmm. some of the autoimmune illnesses. I've had patients test positive for autoimmune disease, but then also test positive for Lyme. Mm -hmm. And once we treated the Lyme, their autoimmune markers came back to normal. Hmm, interesting. So that's an interesting one. Yeah. And part of the problem, of course, when you get into the autoimmune stuff is that the first thing docs want to do some of the time is put them on prednisone, which is just the very worst thing a Lyme patient could take. Because it's going to suppress their immune system, which they need to be strong. Because it suppresses to... their immune system. And they feel better. Of course, they feel better. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but if they get back off it, then they're usually, you know, rebounds a lot worse. Right. It's really just kicking them while they're down. Um, we are speaking to Dr. Nicola McFadgen on Lyme disease from a naturopathic perspective. Um, I do see some people on the, uh, the switchboard. If you want to ask a question, go ahead and press 1, and I will bring you on the air, and you can ask a question. 
Um, so let's get into kind of more of like the naturopathic perspective. Or actually, let, let's jump into your book. So your book is fabulous. I absolutely love it. I was reading it um, during eating uh, Thai food the other day, <laughs> sitting there at lunch <laughs> through it, and I just really enjoyed it. So tell us a little, little bit about your book. What is the Lyme diet and what's your book all about? Yeah, well, I mean, and again, that all came about because so many of my patients were asking, you know, how could they adapt their nutrition to help their illness? And um, and so I sort of sat down to write a two-page handout, and six months later I finished and it was a book. But mm-hmm. I think that I can very safely say the patients, the people that really pay attention to their diet and really put the effort in do a lot better. I mean, I can say that for certain. The book is... Um, well, I can give you a couple of the main points, you know, the main things that I believe. I believe that a lot of people with Lyme do much better if they don't have gluten. So the first thing I encourage my patients to get off gluten because gluten is very inflammatory. Um, a lot of them have GI problems anyway, and if they are doing antibiotic treatment, then we don't want to create any more inflammation in the gut than we have to. But I have noticed that there seems to be some correlation between gluten intolerance and Lyme. And the other thing is a lot of Lyme patients end up with thyroid issues. And so we see a link between gluten and thyroid and then thyroid and Lyme and Lyme and gluten. So it makes sense just to take that out. Hmm. I also try and get people to minimize dairy, um, again, just for its sort of inflammatory and immune-provoking nature. And if I can, I'll get food sensitivity testing done just so I can weed out any other things that may be triggering somebody's immune system. Um, Because I always say, you know, they need all the immune fight they've got just for the Lyme. You don't want your immune system wasted on some food that you could cut out of your diet if you knew. Um, So that's sort of the first thing. I mean, definitely low sugar. And a lot of my Lyme people have candida kinds of issues going on. And I used to think it was just because, you know, if they've taken antibiotics or they're taking antibiotics, then that's sort of given rise to a yeast overgrowth. But even my folks who aren't on antibiotics, I see that propensity. So keeping to a low-sugar, low-carb diet is really important. Um, So, you know, focusing on lean proteins, focusing on the healthy fats, um, focusing on, you know, I've got just bits about low glycemic index, um, acid and alkaline balance. And so it's not that... (laughs) To be honest, it's not that the Lyme diet has revolutionary new ways of eating. I mean, there's nothing, you know, nothing magical in there except that I've tried to present the information in such a way that it makes sense to the Lyme sufferer. Like, as a Lyme patient, why do they need to care about gluten? Why should they care about sugar? And to put it to them in a language that that they can resonate with based on, you know, the health issues, the symptoms that they've been suffering. And just specific things, like for example, if you know, if a patient, if a person is taking Mepron or Malarone, these are two medications used to address Babesia, then it needs to be taken with about 20 grams of fat per serving. So the book has a table on how to get 20 grams of fat in a healthy way without having to feel like you know you need to sit down and eat a packet of French fries with it. Mm-hmm. Um, how to get it from almond butter and fish oil, and how many grams of fat in in each thing. So. I've tried to just put in sort of good, solid information that's really applicable to this population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very easy to understand. It's very quick read, easy to run through. I love there was one um, quote you said is, poor nutrition is an unnecessary obstacle to healing. I love yeah. that. 
Well, you know, I really see that people with Lyme, um, it takes a lot away from their life. They feel very powerless. And it's partially because they've had, you know, so many years of pain and suffering and no one's been able to help them. It's partially because most of them have been belittled at some point by some part of the medical establishment. Um, you know, it's a very disempowering illness. And and I think I see a lot of people feeling very out of control. And, you know, the diet is one part that everyone can control. Everyone can can do something towards a, a better nutritional status. And it doesn't have to be that they're 100% gluten-free and 100% off dairy and no sugar. I mean, it, it shouldn't be a sort of really black or white, I need to do everything or I've completely failed and I may as well give up kind of mentality. It's just a sort of, you know, what can I do today? Take one thing. What can I do? Okay, I'm going to introduce protein smoothies in the morning. I'm going to do that every day or five days a week. And then a month later, pick one new thing. So, I mean, granted, Lyme patients have a lot, you know, they have a lot to cope with and a lot to take on. Um, so you don't want to give them anything too overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And I certainly don't give people, you know, a, a diet guideline or an outline of, okay, this is what you're going to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the next week. Because to me, that doesn't have enough flexibility, and it also doesn't teach them how to learn um, to choose nutrition better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can make a long list of a regimented diet, but it's really all about what the patient can realistically do. Yeah, yeah, and everybody's different. So I tried to structure the book so it was a resource that people can just come back and forth, um, pick it up, you know, pull something out of it and and put it back down again. Um, mm-hmm. And I also tried to do it in sort of simple terms, but I go through different sections, like how to eat to improve your digestive health, how to eat for hormone balance, how to eat to support detoxification, how to eat to minimize inflammation, mm-hmm. and how to eat to boost your immune system. They're sort of like the five sort of big sections, mm-hmm. and then you know, it goes through different, um, more the practical aspects. So you know, what is gluten? How to eat gluten-free meal suggestions and smoothie recipes and all that kind of stuff. And then it does have a section on supplements and herbs at the end. Um, I just didn't want to get too off track with that kind of stuff. Got it. Let's take it to the phone lines. I see a couple people who have been very patient on the line here, so I'm going to go ahead and bring on a caller from the 925. Caller, are you there? Uh, This is Jason from Orinda, California. Hey, Jason. Thanks for calling in. You're on Dr. Low Radio. What's your question? Uh, I was wondering if you recommended any specific brands of colloidal silver to treat uh, Lyme and co-infections. Yeah, um, I've used miso silver a little bit. Um, okay. Yeah, that's really the only one that I've sort of had any experience with. Um, but I know even at, even for the miso silver, the dosing for Lyme patients is pretty high. It's like you know two ounces four times a day or something like that. Um, and you know, I I've had some success with colloidal silver. Um, I can't, you know, I can't say that I've found it to be sort of a, a a standalone treatment, I guess, for want of a better word. Um, but you know, you hear really good anecdotal reports on um, on people experiencing good results with it. So colloidal silver is a very safe supplement. They've They've learned how to do it now without turning people blue, which is a real major bonus. Mm-hmm. Um, and the miso silver is certainly, you know, very safe. So that's the one I've used in the past. Uh, how do you spell that type of silver? M E S O silver. M E S O. Ah, okay. Uh, thanks a lot. 
Thanks for your question. No worries. All right. They uh, just redesigned the switchboard on Block Talk Radio, so it's very fancy. I'm learning as I go. Um, so let's let's jump into well. One thing I love in your book too, you talk about the uh, the three pillars of Lyme treatment. Um, can you go into a little bit about those? What what are these pillars all about? Well, I mean, it's it's effectively just broadening the view that you know one pillar of of treating Lyme is most obviously killing bugs. You know whether that's done with um, you know, antibiotics or herbs or rifing or whatever the case may be. We need to kill bugs, and that's very clear. And I think sometimes in more allopathic medical communities, um, there's a lot of antibiotics being given to kill the bugs, but it doesn't go any further than that. And and so the second pillar is more supporting the host, you know, strengthening the individual so that they can not only withstand the infection better, but also withstand the treatment, because some of these treatments get pretty, you know, heavy duty. So that would be, you know, strengthening the immune system. And that's where I think nutrition comes in to really make the, the individual as healthy as possible um, going into treatment and, you know, just taking care of all the underlying things. Um, so that might be, you know, really eating to prevent yeast overgrowth and things like that. But a lot of it's about, um, you know, strengthening the immune system so that it can fight better. And then the third pillar is really about all the accessory issues that tend to go along with a chronic Lyme condition. And, you know, I've mentioned some of them already, but a lot of people's hormones get all out of whack. Um, adrenals certainly take a beating. Um, Heavy metals are a big deal. I mean, a lot of Lyme patients, I find, have heavy metal accumulation in the body. And so sometimes clearing some of the heavy metals can really benefit the neurological symptoms. Um, and then, you know, looking at other things like the gluten intolerance and things like that. But trying to identify some of the other areas that we need to address at the same time. There's a little bit of a risk of, and actually I was on the phone tonight with a patient in Australia and um, he was having some issues with, you know, hormone imbalance. And his doctor had said to him, well, you don't really need to address that. That will correct itself when, you know, as, as the Lyme treatment progresses. And, I mean, yes, it probably will. Um, but I also think that doing hormone balancing along the way could help him to feel better while all of that's taking place. Right, not making it such a miserable process, really helping to support the yeah, body. Yeah, I mean, you have to do what you can to relieve symptoms, even though, you know, naturopathic doctors are very cognizant of not just doing Band-Aid treatment. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as naturopaths, that's sort of what we do best. But, you know, we're also, uh, we're also in the business of helping our patients to feel better right away. So, you know, I will do anti-inflammatory stuff and hormone support and, all of those things just to try and get the body a little bit better supported, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I was flipping through this article that you had in the Townsend Letter, which is a fabulous article, and you were talking about the different, um, some of the different naturopathic treatments that you do for Lyme and some of the co-infections. Um, could you go into a little bit of that, like from a therapeutic perspective? Um, you know, what are some things that you use with patients? Well, um, yeah, so it does depend on, on the co-infections. The other thing just to mention to add to the complexity is, you know, these little spirochetes that we're talking about are actually very, very intelligent critters. And so as soon as you start going after them, whether it's the immune system or antibiotics, um, 
they can actually roll up into little balls, and I'm sort of using simple language here, but they form what's called cysts, and they, they sort of roll up in a little ball and they hide. They don't like the antibiotics coming after them. They want to hide from the immune system. And so when we're choosing treatments, we have to be aware of the different life cycles of the Borrelia bacteria, and that's very important when it comes to antibiotic selection, but it's it's also somewhat important when it comes to natural treatment. So we do know that grapefruit seed extract is um, has been shown in the Petri dish anyway, has been shown to, to um, eradicate cyst forms of Lyme, so that's promising. Um, I do a lot of herbal antimicrobials, so... Some of my favorites for the lime, I mean, definitely cat's claw is a good one. I tend to use a lot of guaiacum, and that's an herb that's been used in Europe for years for syphilis. Um, hasn't really taken off here from a sort of widely used standpoint, but makes all the sense in the world to me to do that. And uh, teasel root, I love. I do a lot of that. Um, and then, of course, immune support, um, whether it's with different herbs. I use um, transfer factors. Um, Transfer factors have been very good. You can either use a transfer factor that's speci- that's sort of general to, to support immune function, um, and then there are actually transfer factors made for specific infections. So there is one for Lyme. There's one for mycoplasma, which we don't test for as much here, but I think is a um, is a co-infection also that many people have. Um, and then. Um, you know, all the different things, like I said, around immune or adrenal support. So using um, plant-based cortisol extracts or DHEA or different balancing herbs like ashwagandha and rhodiola um, can be good for adrenal support. Um, for the Babesia, I tend to use more artemisinin, um, which is an extract from the herb artemisia, and that's a good, um, fairly potent supplement to address Babesia. Um, so I really rely on herbs quite a lot. And then there are some homeopathic series remedies that I use sometimes for Borrelia and some of the co-infections also. So is, it the, with... is it the individual um, microorganism as a homeopathic or do you use just, you know, depending on there, symptoms? Yeah, the one I use is a blend and it covers Borrelia, um, Babesia, and I think Ehrlichia is the other one. And then Bartonella you can actually get separately. And um, there are different potencies and they're little vials and you take a vial every three days and they come sort of 10 in a box. So for a month and it graduates you up the potencies. Mm-hmm. And then in the second month you go, so say if the first month is from you know 1 to 10 and then the second month you do 10 to 1 and then the third month 1 to 10. And I usually have people do that for three to four months. And that can be helpful too. I'm a big fan of hyperbaric oxygen. I wish it wasn't so so expensive so that more people could afford it. Um, but I'm definitely a fan of hyperbarics. I don't see them, again, it's not the one be-all and end-all that, that'll make Lyme go away and that's all there is to it kind of thing. I've definitely seen folks do well with 30 to 40 treatments. Mm-hmm. But what I is also hyperbaric oxygen for those who aren't familiar? Hyperbaric oxygen is when um, you go into, like literally into a chamber, it looks like a little baby submarine, when they pump... Um, they pump oxygen in there. And so you're sort of in this pressurized oxygen environment. And the reason that that's helpful is, number one, the, the actual microbes don't like that high um, potency of, of oxygen. So it can kill off bugs, but it also accelerates cell healing. It's good for supporting neurological 
regeneration. Um, so there's a few different mechanisms at work there, but hyperbaric oxygen I've definitely seen as a great adjunct therapy. Okay. It's a good piece of the puzzle in this treatment mix. I want to um, ask uh, ask something about viruses, and then I'm going to get to a couple callers. So for those callers on the line, I'm going to take the 605 and then 508 area code. Um, so in your article, you talk about viruses and how those can oftentimes come along with someone who has Lyme disease. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people with Lyme test positive for, you know, Epstein-Barr, CMV, even HHV6. Um, these are all in the herpes family of viruses. I've come to the I've sort of come to the point now where I feel like most of the people have antibodies for those things. Either they've had some exposure or maybe they've got some chronic latent viral thing going on. Mm-hmm. But I don't I don't feel it's a big contributor to the Lyme symptom picture. Um there are some folks I tried antiviral therapy with and it just didn't really make much difference. Uh it's a minority of of folks where doing any antiviral therapy makes a huge impact on their symptoms. So I think a lot of people just have these things going on in the background, but again, it's just one more little, you know, one more little insult to the immune system. Mhm. So, I think it's a factor. I don't think it's a humongous factor. Now, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think the bacterial and and more sort of amoebic infections override the viruses in terms of the symptoms that they produce. There is a little bit of research, or not just a little bit, but there was a new virus, XMRV virus, that was talked about, and they have found that that is a virus that seems to appear in a lot of chronic fatigue patients and Lyme patients. Mm -hmm. But to this date, we haven't really got good treatment options to address it. I mean, the treatments that were sort of thrown around were more like chronic HIV infections, you know, triple... Um, antivirals and, you know, real heavy hitter medications. So, I I mean, I'm not even testing for that virus yet. To me, until there's a viable treatment path, then then there's not a whole lot of points. So we're all kind of watching and waiting on that one. Right. Sounds like people are all continuing to really learn a lot about this condition and changing things up based on the new body of evidence. That's true to an extent. Um, but then we're also limited by research. I mean, if you consider that a good chunk of the medical establishment is saying that chronic Lyme doesn't exist, then it's hard to get research done right. and funded um, because it's not like, you know, I think when HIV was first on the scene, um, and maybe I'm remembering incorrectly, but it seemed like there was tons of fundraising, there was tons of research dollars, there was tons of publicity, all the celebrities got behind it. You know, it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Why aren't we seeing that with Lyme disease? Exactly, and that's what we need. The incidence of Lyme this. is so much higher now than HIV. It's the fastest growing vector of born disease in, in America. Mm-hmm. It's an international problem. Yep, it's more common and more more serious than West Nile virus, and that was huge, you know, with public. Yep. It's huge. So we definitely yeah. need to get more um, awareness about this. And, you know, it makes sense for um, for it to be not accepted that chronic Lyme disease exists because then the insurance companies, you know, they don't have to pay for it if it's not accepted. They just deny, 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 left and right. They're saving tons of money. So that's that's really the right. problem. Um, but, you know, one of, the, um, one of the patients that was highlighted in the movie sort of made a good point. Like, I mean, it's probably $20, $20 worth of antibiotics that would have fixed him if he'd been diagnosed accurately at the beginning. Mm-hmm. 
you know, but as it was, it wasn't diagnosed, and so he got very, very sick for years. And then treatment, you know, people often spend a hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars, a hundred and fifty thousand dollars in treatment, right. all told. You know, over many years of trying this and trying that, and this doctor and that doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he uh, a few of the patients just picked up their bag and opened them up and dropped all the supplements and medications on the ground. It was just like piles of you know things that yeah. they had taken. Yeah. All right, I'm going to take a caller before we run out of time. So this caller is from the uh, 605. Caller, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi, welcome to Dr. Low Radio. What's your name and where are you calling from? My name is Shirley, and I'm calling from the Southern Black Hills, South Dakota. Hello, Shirley. Thanks for calling in. What's what's your question? Well, I've been an outdoors person, and I have common variable immune deficiency. Uh, I've had both Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever and Lyme's and was just, um, the doctors didn't believe me. They said, oh, it's nothing. Um, I showed them where the tick bite was and they still didn't believe me. (laughs) But later on, I finally got treated. I wrote up my own report and took it to the third doctor and finally got treated, but it was weeks later. I still don't feel good. And the Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever was five years ago. I wondered if there's anything else I can do to feel better. Yeah, well, I would, I would say yes. Um, how <laughs> long were the antibiotics that you, you, that you were given? Um, ten days. Ten days, yeah. Doxycycline, so, ten days. Right. And so they refused to give me more when I went enough. back to them. When I went back to them, uh, the Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, um, the rash kept coming back, the protective <laughs> rash. And um, he he did, after a couple of weeks, give me another dose of doxycycline. But it kept coming back. I'm relating that to my CVID, which I didn't know at the time I had, um, the inability yeah. to fight off infections at all. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a complicated issue. Yeah, because of that. Well, I mean, it sounds to me like your um like the infections weren't adequately treated in the beginning, so they probably mm-hmm. have become more chronic at this point. And exactly. I mean, let me be clear about one thing. I mean, as much as I talk about diet and naturopathic um support and herbs and things like that, I mean, there are many people who flat out need antibiotics. And it may be several different antibiotics, and it may be quite long-term. Do you need um, them all at once? Well, no, it, I mean, it all depends on the individual case, how sensitive the, you know you are, um, and how you respond to different medications. But mm-hmm. uh, were you on previously when we were talking about the different forms, like there's a sort of the spirochete form of the Borrelia, and then there's a cyst form, and... Um, mm-hmm. There's cell mm-hmm. wall deficient forms, so you sort of need a couple of different medications at least to cover those bases. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, oftentimes, like some of my Lyme patients have been on antibiotics for you know a couple of years um, to really get a handle on it. So you know, it's 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 very rarely less than six months. It's very wow. often over a year, but it's sometimes even up to two years, and for some people even longer. So it's okay. it's really I it would. I would suggest that you um, that you look around in your area for a Lyme literate doctor, and the, there probably the best one. way to do that <laughs> there isn't one. Yeah, and, no. and a lot of people have to travel. A lot of people have to travel. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but the Lyme Disease Association is a good resource. They will, if you put in your zip code, they'll give you the three closest doctors to you. Okay. And then the other piece of advice I have for you and for other listeners who might be thinking about going to see a Lyme doc is try and make sure they're a member of ILADS. ILADS is the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society. Yes, I'm familiar with that. These are the group of doctors that won't tell you that... I'm sorry? That's a very good site. Yeah, they've got a good website, good information, but it's an association of doctors who work with Lyme disease, and Mm -hmm. they're the docs who aren't going to tell you that you're crazy. (laughs) You know, they're the group that that, you know, considers long-term antibiotics as necessary in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the group that will be a bit more knowledgeable, knowledgeable about co-infections and things like that. How do you treat the yeast infections that would come from being on antibiotics that long? Well, I mean, the, the, first, the, the first point is to try and prevent them, so high doses okay. of really good quality probiotics. Um, you know, I'd start off with antifungal herbs like you know, oregano oil and powdarco sure. and garlic and caprylic acid and all that good stuff. Um, sometimes I'll do nystatin, which is an antifungal medicine. It's not sure. systemically absorbed, so it's a very sort of safe, non-toxic one. And then if someone has mm-hmm. a significant yeast issue, I'll bring out the fluconazole, which is diflucan, and get them on that. Cool. Okay. That makes sense. Great. Yeah. Thanks for calling, Shelley. Do you have any follow-up questions? No, I don't think so. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for calling in. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, let me go ahead and take the second caller here, if I can learn how to do my switchboard. Uh, let's see here. Oh, wow, that's loading. Okay, it worked. So caller from the 508, are you there? I'm here. Hi. Thanks for calling in Dr. Low Radio. What's your name and where are you calling from? Lisa calling from Massachusetts. Hello, Lisa. What's your question for Dr. McFadden? I'm wondering, if a person is treated with IV antibiotics, does that protect their gut bacteria? And also, I was wondering if you think that Lyme can be transmitted through raw cow's milk or raw goat's milk. Um, Both good questions. So the first one, um, IV meds like Rocephin do actually um, do have some impact on gut flora, not as much as oral meds. And IV rocephin will end up going through the liver and gallbladder, which is why a lot of rocephin folks end up with gallbladder issues and have to take um, medication to prevent gallbladder problems. So there is some clearing through there and, and subsequently through the large bowel, um, but it won't be as pronounced as with oral antibiotics, so it's not as much of a problem. Um, and now I've already forgotten the second question, which was that? <laughs> oh, I'm wondering if you think Lyme can be transmitted through raw cow or Oh, goat raw milk. milk. Right. Um, I think it probably can, but that's purely my opinion. I mean, I don't know that we have, okay. you know, any studies to back that up, but just thinking through mechanisms, um, I would think that, that that could be possible. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lisa. You're welcome. So your um, opinion of that would be that the spirochete could be absorbed through the gut and then potentially to the bloodstream, possibly. That's what you're thinking? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't put it past it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, you put nothing past this bug. Never underestimate this mm-hmm. little critter. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, for those other callers still on the um, switchboard, if you want to ask a question, press 1. And for the last-minute callers, uh, it's 818-495-6919. That's 818-495-6919. We could probably take one or two more calls. Um, let's see here. What else? One thing that they mentioned um, in the documentary, and I know it's been a discussion, is the issue of uh, biofilm. So what is a biofilm, and what's the possible involvement with Lyme disease with that? Yeah, so biofilms, I mean, I'm going to just make it really um, really simple and unscientific. Mm-hmm. Biofilms are like sticky goo. They're like sticky goo, and you can have biofilms in different parts of the body. Like there's a lot of, you know, like biofilms in the oral cavity. Um, there's biofilms in the gut. There's biofilms throughout the body. But the idea that is that they're sticky goo, and so the bacteria can get in there and hide, and that there may be colonies of um, of Borrelia and other microbes creating their own biofilm and sort of hiding out in these biofilms, and so and so not really um, impacted too much by the antibiotics. So what we do is then we sort of give certain enzymes like lumbrokinase and natokinase, um, even calcium EDTA, some of these natural agents to try and break through the biofilm and so that the antimicrobials, whether they be herbs or antibiotics, can access the bacteria to have the intended effect. Got it. So it dismantles the biofilm so that the medications can then actually you know, adhere and take care of the the infection. Right, yeah. And we see sometimes when we start giving some of these enzymes, um, I mean, I use lumbrokinase quite a bit for that. And then there's another product um, that I use called Interphase Plus um, by Claire Labs. It's a good one also for biofilm. And sometimes when we start doing that, we have to start really slowly because it can really unleash... um, sort of an outpouring of bacteria. And if, if the patient's not ready, they can have a massive Herx reaction. Um, and a Herx reaction is just when you start killing off the bacteria and they produce all these neurotoxins. And it actually makes people feel worse before they feel better because they've got all these toxins floating around their body. Mm-hmm. So we've got to be careful with the biofilm stuff because sometimes it, you know, you've got to just do a little, <laughs> can't do too much too soon. Right, right knowing which stage to do it and making sure to make it tolerable for the patient. Right, right. Uh, I have a a question from Amy on Facebook. Um, She wants to know, if you have been diagnosed with fibromyalgia, how would you know if you actually have Lyme disease? Um, Does Lyme cause fibromyalgia or is it a completely different condition with similar symptoms? Um, Well, fibromyalgia is, realistically, it's just a description of symptoms. Um, it's not really a cause of anything. Um, it's a syndrome, which just means it's a host of different symptoms that no one really knows what's going on, so we put it in the category of a syndrome. Um, so Lyme can be a causative agent of fibromyalgia. In other words, um, if you've been diagnosed with fibromyalgia, it may be Lyme all along. It's just appearing as fibromyalgia because that's the label they have for it. Hmm. So... I mean, fibromyalgia, it doesn't give us a description of what's underlying. Right. It's just a description of what's actually happening symptom-wise. Mm-hmm. It's all about so getting I, you know, are they the same or are they different? I mean, they're different, they're different diagnoses, but Lyme can cause fibromyalgia. Okay. Do you see that a lot in your practice? A lot. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, 90% of my Lyme patients have been given the fibromyalgia diagnosis at some point. Wow. Because if someone presents with, you know, pain, especially muscle pain and fatigue, then that usually, you know, that constellation of symptoms usually gets them the fibromyalgia diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And patients with Lyme, I mean, they'll tell me they hurt all over. Right. Yep. Here's a question from Ryan. He wants to know... Um, he wants to know about panic disorder in Lyme, like the you know the the brain and the the Lyme connection and and how to address that. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I I have seen in Lyme disease, I've seen most different, you know, neurological manifestations, psycho-emotional manifestations. Um, I have had Lyme patients who get panic attacks, anxiety, um, who develop OCD kind of behaviors. Um, I've had a couple who've got, you know, really like paranoid. Um, it really, it can produce all of those things. And it's, it's because the infections really get to the brain. They they definitely impact the brain function. And that's where, you know, antibiotics are definitely needed to knock the infection down. And then those things tend to resolve. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we can do supportive care along the way. There's def- different ways to measure the neurotransmitters, which are the brain chemicals. Oftentimes, they'll be out of balance. So sometimes supporting brain chemistry as all of this is happening goes a long way to offsetting anxiety, you know, panic, um, depression, insomnia, all of these kinds of things. What are some of the ways that you've done that with patients in, in addressing anxiety and depression and that kind of thing? Yeah, usually using amino acids like 5-HTP, um, using GABA and theanine more for the anxiety piece. Um, some of the herbs for sort of calming the nervous system, um, like, you know, passionflower and chamomile and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had some good results with that kind of thing. And then I do a therapy called neurofeedback. And that's, um, that's really fascinating because it actually helps to balance the brain, the brain wave activity. So it balances and retrains the brain to function in, in healthy frequency patterns, um, and that's helped a lot of my Lyme patients, too, with some of those issues. Great. And uh, to Ryan, who asked that question, I would also recommend that he uh, check out the, the show I did with Julia Ross on the mood cure. I think that will be really helpful for you, Ryan. Just check that out, and it's all about amino acid therapy, too, so you might get some more information on that. Um, I love in your article you talk about um, different symptomatic relief for patients because, you know, like you said, you know, people with Lyme are dealing with pain. They're dealing with insomnia. they got headaches. they got all kinds of things. And that's the beauty of naturopathic medicine is there's a lot of really great non-toxic effective treatments that we can do for that. So um, for those out there who are dealing with insomnia, for example, um, what are some things they can do or for pain? What are some suggestions you have for them dealing with those symptoms? Yeah, um, well, so for insomnia, uh, and it depends a little bit what's causing it, you know, if it's being driven by pain or if it's just a, a more, you know, straight insomnia situation. But I use, again, some of the natural agents. I actually have a combination formula that I really like um, that's actually going to be for sale on our website pretty soon here called Dr. Nicola's Sleep Assist. And um, we've had it formulated for us. And it has some 5-HTP and some uh, melatonin. But it also has a host of herbs in it. It's actually got some amino acids also that we were just talking about, inositol, GABA, theanine, things like that. And then it's got you know chamomile, hops, passionflower, um, California poppy, 
which are all sort of sedative type herbs. And that formula has been working like a charm, which is really nice because sleep is a major issue for Lyme people. Um, the other thing I do for pain, I mean, I have a nerve pain formula that I've had, again, had that formulated. It's a tincture, and um, it's been very effective for sort of burning, shooting, stabbing kind of pain, more than nerve-oriented pain. I've got several patients who just swear by it. Um, but my favorite for sort of more muscle and joint pain is a formula called Soothe and Relax, and it's by a company called Research Nutritionals who make really, really great supplements. Um, and it's got, you know, magnesium and malic acid are great for muscle aches and muscle ten- tension, um, but it's got all the herbal anti-inflammatories, so white willow and holy basil and um, things that can help calm inflammation in the body. So they're sort of two of my favorites for nerve pain and for um, more of the muscle and joint pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, a combination of of the joint protectors like glucosamine and chondroitin and things like that because Lyme really attacks the joints and the cartilage. So that's where a lot of people end up with pain. Um, You know, the minerals like magnesium and such. And then as much of the herbal anti-inflammatories are great without actually resorting to pain meds. Great. That's awesome. Yeah. I uh, I have one last-minute question from Facebook and then a couple of last-minute questions from from me because our time flew, as I expected it would. Um, (laughs) The last question from Facebook is Damon. He wants to know, if you have symptoms of chronic fatigue syndrome, is this always a result of Lyme? No, not necessarily. No, it's not always Lyme. Um, I mean, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome can be a post-viral thing, um, especially after with an Epstein-Barr kind of situation. Um, and it can be, you know, I've had some chronic fatigue patients who it really seemed to be closely tied to heavy metal toxicity. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be like major adrenal burnout. So there's different factors that can contribute. It's not necessarily 100% Lyme. Um, but, you know, anyone with chronic fatigue syndrome, I would suggest they at least um, look at Lyme as a possibility and maybe get some tests done just to just to see. Yeah, it's important to rule it out at least as a possible yeah. Okay. And then I am just curious, so I'm sure you get asked this a lot, is Lyme disease curable? Is there hope for people who have this? What's your take on that? Yeah, I do get asked it a lot. And, I mean, to some extent I sort of have to I have to follow the, the opinion of some of my mentors and some of the Lyme literate docs, you know, at the very top of the game. Um, and the general consensus is that it's not completely curable once it's chronic. Now, if somebody has acute Lyme and they're, you know, bitten last week and they get on enough medication, then yes, then I think you can cure it and be done with it and never hear from it again. Once it's become chronic, the belief is that it stays in the system to some extent. However, you know, Epstein-Barr virus also will always be in the system to some extent. So will herpes viruses. Um, I don't let, you know, I don't let that take away our hope for you know, a complete recovery. Um, curing and getting the bugs out of the system is a very different ball game to, you know, will I ever get out of pain and will I ever get my life back? And I think the answers to that are always, you know, a possible yes. Um, so, you know, I really try and work on, you know, getting everybody to their potential level of health, whatever that is for them, and it may be different for some folks. 
some people may have some neurological damage that they'll always deal with something. But I've definitely got patients where they've been through treatment and now they're, you know, they're off antibiotics, they're back in their lives and having a good time. Can I guarantee that they won't see this you know, flare up again at some point in their life? I can't guarantee that. Mm-hmm. All right. And for those, you know, my, my audience base is pretty wide. I know there's a lot of people listening who are general public, and there's also a lot of um, fellow doctors listening and naturopathic students and medical students. So for those healthcare practitioners who want to learn more about how to become more of a, a Lyme literate doctor, what are some resources for them to learn more? Yeah, um, the best thing is to go to the ILADS website. ILADS holds an annual conference, which would be a really great starting point. And they also have a training program where you can actually go shadow, and I think it's two weeks now, you can go hang out with a Lyme literate MD and um, and spend two weeks with them in their practice, you know, seeing their day-to-day patients and operations and what medications they're choosing and all of that kind of thing. So ILADS is really the key group for us docs who are treating chronic Lyme, so that would be the best starting point. Great. And then for the listeners as well, um, where can they learn more about you and pick up your book and just more more uh, resources for the general public? Yeah, well, my website is restoremedicine.com. That's R-E-S-T-O-R-M-E-D-I-C-I-N-E.com. Restore does not have an E on the end. Um, so that's sort of got the information about sort of what more what I do. It's got some, um, it actually does have some protocols and such listed on it. And then through that, you'd actually find a link to our online store, um, which can be found directly at shop.restoremedicine.com, but you'll see a link on the main website. Um, And some of those products I mentioned are for sale there. The book is for sale there. Um, And so that's a good resource as well. Great. Awesome. Any last-minute parting words for, for the audience? I think just, I mean, the thing that I would really emphasize is just don't rule it out. Um, really try and get to a doc who knows what they're doing. And if you're concerned, I mean, I do phone consults with people actually all over the world, you know, England and Australia and Norway and, and all over the place. So, I mean, I work with plenty of folks long distance. Um, the restriction on that is I can't prescribe for anyone I haven't met face-to-face. And also just legality-wise, I can't prescribe out of my Connecticut office, only out of the California office just different scope of practice for an atropath in those two states. Um, but if if somebody w- wasn't sure and wanted to do a phone consult and at least get some testing th- done through Igenix, um, I could certainly facilitate that. And um, and then if we were trying to find them a more local doc, we could, you know, deal with that down the road. Okay, great. Or getting just, you know, alternative care on the side of getting conventional care. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And so what I do for all my folks in Australia is, you know, I, I say, okay, well, let's, do this testing and or you know I've got enough experience now to hear a symptom picture and go yeah that sounds like this co-infection or that co-infection and um, I'll put them on a naturopathic regimen and then I'll say well you know (laughs) if I were prescribing for you this is what I would give you XYZ medications and so you know I actually take a pretty active role in what medications these folks are getting I'm just not the one writing the prescriptions for it Mm -hmm. okay got it Awesome. Dr. McFadden, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm glad we were able to connect and do this, and I'm glad the uh, show is so well-received. I think it's going to be probably my highest-listened-to show so far, so that'll be great, really getting this out there. 
Um, Good. So, again, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. You're very it. welcome. Nice All to right. talk to you. Talk okay. to you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. That's the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, if you do have this condition, I really, really suggest that you do seek out Dr. Um, Nicola. She's fabulous. And as you can tell from the show, she has a very um, easy to listen to, non-judgmental way with her patients, and she'll really understand what you're what you're dealing with. So she's fabulous. I highly suggest her as a doctor. So um, next week's show, mark your calendar. It'll be doc, or it'll be uh, Nora Gagoutis. We'll be talking all about paleo and ways to really optimize your health with your diet. So it'll be a fabulous show. Uh, more about me, drlaurennoel.com. And uh, I will talk to you guys later. Thanks so much for all the uh, Facebook questions and the phone calls. And uh, check you guys next week. Bye. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Can you enjoy Thanksgiving dinner without the holiday hassles? Better believe it. The Pilgrim Sub is back at Get-Go Cafe and Market. Come and taste why it's our best-selling sub of all time. This holiday feast starts with our fresh-baked secret recipe stuffing bread. Then we load it with juicy roasted turkey, melted Wisconsin white cheddar, savory gravy, and if you like, house-made cranberry sauce. Don't wait for Turkey Day to chow down on this tasty tradition. The Pilgrim Sub is only here for a limited time. Get-Go Cafe and Market. Better believe it.